Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 17. I am 36 years old. I'll turn 37 next month. I do not feel it. Now, that's not to say I don't stare in terror at the proverbial weight being added to the bench physically year after year. But in terms of emotional maturity, in terms of the stabilizing and fortifying of a mind and a heart and a spirit in a way that improves me as a person and in a way that supports me truly engaging with people and communities I love, I feel like I'm nowhere near where I need to be in relation to the years I've clocked and the experiences I've been afforded. Someone recently put me across Pema Chodron's perspective on the idea of groundlessness. An American Tibetan Buddhist and spiritual icon, Chodron says, quote, when we resist change, it's called suffering. But when we can completely let go and not struggle against it, when we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into its dynamic quality, that's called enlightenment. Now, I am not a religious person, and this is not a religious podcast, but good thinking is good thinking, and great thinking is great thinking. And Pema Chodron and her approach to groundlessness and the person who introduced me to both are all things I'd wished I'd come across sooner in life, but they're also things that I'm very happy I have right now. And Chodron's idea of relaxing into the dynamic quality of groundlessness is one that comes up over the course of these next conversations. All right, episode 17. 2020 is my 15th year at the ASPWSL. As I've talked about before, I worked retail at Rip Curl on and off for seven years before that with some freelance surf journalism stints overlapping that time. As a result, today's guest is someone I've had a more than passing familiarity with for 22 years, well over half my life. And as he and I sat for over two hours in what we've turned into a two-part podcast, I couldn't shake thinking about how his and my dynamic had shifted over time from when I used to load him up with wetsuits and wax for the Boost Mobile Pro at Trestles when he'd stop by the shop to when he'd challenge the value of sitting at a press conference for two hours while the media only spoke to Kelly, to his ascension to the world crown not once, but three times, the fame associated with it and the late nights of tour partying, to his unfair pigeonholing as the conservative foil to the progressive movement of Dane Reynolds and Jordy Smith, to the times when tragedy would strike and he'd occupy the emotional support pillar for surfers and staff alike, to his earth-stopping encounter with a great white shark on live broadcast at Jeffreys Bay, and the media feeding frenzy that resulted, to his eventual evolution into a global business and sporting icon and revered statesman of the championship tour, to this conversation sitting across from him on a couch, talking about where he's been and where he is and where he's going. Our guest today probably requires no further introduction than that. Please enjoy part one of the lineup's conversation with Mick Fanning. The good old clap take one. That's right. <laughs> How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I thought you were boxing. Cool. Well, well, Mick, thanks for coming on the lineup. You are currently... Still rehabilitating from tearing your ACL mm -hmm. during the Stab in the Dark All-Stars with Dane and Jordy in South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened, how you got injured, and what the rehab process has been like? 
Um, yeah, look, I was, um, we're sort of just getting towards the end of a surf and, um, yeah, just come out and just like cool away, got a little barrel. As I came out, I went to just do a, um, just a, a standard, you know, layback carve sort of thing. And halfway through my knee just felt like it just popped out and I knew instantly it was gone. Um, and yeah, from then on, it was just, all right, <laughs> what's next? And, uh, so that was in, that was in August. It's now what January, mid Jan. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long process. I won't lie. Um, if you can avoid doing an ACL, please avoid it. Cause it's the most boring in injury ever. You can't do anything. It's just such a slow build up And, um, yeah, so um yeah, I'm I'm almost I'm so I'm five months out now. Um I actually just text um Chris Prosser and uh my friend Taylor Cecil, who's doing all my rehab. Um and I'm like, All right boys, when I get home it's time to um check the knee out. It's time to go surfing. I'm <laughs> losing it. <laughs> well, I was saying that around the office the other day when I reached out to you. I'm like, he must be so fucking bored because this is the fastest he's ever gotten back to me about doing anything. I'm like, I still have unanswered texts from like 10 years ago. And I, I just think like, it must be like a particular type of torture for someone like you to be out of the ocean. You just got me at a good time. <laughs> um, no, look, I, I've been really busy actually. It's um, even though I've been, um, you know, working on rehab and, you know, trying to go to do something each and every day, there is a, still a lot of downtime, um, but I've been doing all kinds of different things, which has been awesome. It's been uh, – it, I've done a whole lot of firsts in, in my life, which has been cool. So, um, What have been some of those? Um, I learned how to scuba dive. I, um, I don't know why I did this, but I went and learned how to play golf. <laughs> um, and I think uh, the golf thing is like a friendship thing because so many – probably of your friends and my friends, they do it. And if you don't play, you're like, well, I'm missing out on like four hours of shit talking with my friends. Yeah. Look, I never thought of it that way. I um, <laughs> just didn't like it. I, I played a little bit um, back in the day when we, we won a bunch of golf clubs um, yeah. during a, uh, a team's event. And I started playing golf then. And then after about two months, I'm like, fuck this, I'm over it. And then, um, and then I, I got an invitation to go down to the President's Cup in, in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, so um, you're going to have to play golf. And I'm like, oh, shit. And um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, do I? Normally I just turn golf down, but um, you know, Ash Barty, world number one tennis player, invited me. I was like, well, it's too good of an opportunity not to go down and check out. So, um, yeah, I learned how to play golf and – I'm still really bad at it, but um, it's been pretty funny. Well, that downtime too, you know, I don't know if the genesis for this project was pre-injury, but you obviously announced the project Save the Shark. You're mm -hmm. working with Taylor Steele and Nat Geo. Can you tell us about where that came from and, and what exactly it is? Um, yeah, so my history with Taylor Steele, known each other for forever, um, and we did a project back in 2000. 13 called missing where he pretty much uh kidnapped me for three weeks we did um seven countries in in 18 days or something like that and uh and on that journey we we did 
some really crazy things. Like we went and sat with the um, sat with the gorillas in Rwanda, um, and went and did the running with the bulls in Pamplona, which is still the dumbest thing I've ever done. Still the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, I do not recommend that one bit. People was like, <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. And it's seriously the stupidest thing <laughs> never, ever again. Um, How close did you get? Oh, bull ran past me like me to your way. I'm, just oh, like, no. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a, it's a, pretty funny story we um yeah we're we're getting ready and everyone's you know we're standing with all these grandmas and grandpas and everyone's just cruising and um and then this person comes up and does this questionnaire do you know the rules no <laughs> do you uh do you know what the history of it is not really um <laughs> do you know you can die today oh thanks and and then like Two minutes before um, the balls get let out, all the grandmas and grandpas and all the people that we thought we could beat disappear. And Taylor and I are just standing with these professional runners with sponsors all over their shirts. And <laughs> it was just like, what have we done? And, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, as I said, it's the dumbest thing i've ever done i've never been so scared in my life you don't realize how big they are like a similar story was years ago we were in costa rica for a surf trip and we went to one of the town festivals one night and they did the full endless summer thing where there's a bull ring it's like a makeshift bull ring and you're allowed to go in there's not really any rules and we do a fair amount of drinking and we're like oh, let's go in and you look around and it's like there's no locals no. in the ring. Like it's just a bunch of drunken expat surfers or tourists and they come out. The bulls are huge. Yeah, they're massive. They're yeah. massive. We went, and we were towards the end of the festival too. So they saved the biggest bulls for last. And uh, so, yeah, that was um, – it was really, really freaking scary. <laughs> it was stupid. But anyway, from that, um, Taylor and I – we've sort of made an unspoken pact that if we go and do silly things, then you got to bring the other one along. And um, so I took him up to Alaska um, for a wild arc trip and, you know, got to see bears and stuff like that. And then on that trip, we started talking about all these different things of what we can and can't do for, you know, the world and the environment. And, um, we had this idea of, of going and, and facing sharks again. Um, so yeah, we've just, just come back from the first, the first installment of that. We're in the Bahamas and in Miami and, um, swimming with everything from, um, lemon sharks, the reef sharks to, uh, hammerheads, tigers, bull sharks, um, and met, incredible people along the way people that um i learned so much from um and just really people that really care for for these animals and really care for these uh I, now that i'm sort of looking at them they're more like dogs of the sea mm. um you know they've, they've all got different emotions and stuff like that but um yeah on the, on this project we're going to we're trying to look at why sharks behave the way they do, why they're coming back into different areas, um, why 
there seems to be more attacks. Right. Um, and so it's it's really cool, and it's it's led us down some pathways that tie back to climate change, uh, different currents changing in the in the oceans, and um, and then also, you know, reef healthiness, um, you know, and then overfishing, which is everyone knows, but it, it's really cool how it's a it's a huge three sixty effect and. Um, yeah, just learning about all these different things. I think people are going to hopefully look at sharks a little bit different just from watching this and experiencing this. So the intent is like education and potentially like conservation for a lot of people once they look at the project. Very much so. And it, th- well, there's, there's almost two things. Obviously, the, the conservation side of it um, and the education side of it's one thing. Um, for me, starting it was more of a personal journey as well to see if i was if i was okay and okay with looking at these uh enormous creatures in the in the ocean and and being around them and you know seeing if what feelings i would get and see if anything came up and um it's been it's been fun it's been fun um yeah there's been some great moments (laughs) well and you were obviously uniquely positioned to participate in a project like this i mean one of the the biggest notes in your career internationally was the incident at jeffrey's bay in 2015 i vividly remember where i was when it happened i think it's sort of like it's almost like a 9-11 thing like Mm -hmm. in surfing um you know we talked about no sleep with kids and stuff my kids were a little over a year old at the time so i wasn't traveling and it was like five or six in the morning california time and I admittedly had fallen asleep during the semifinals at my desk, and then I woke up right when the heat started. Yeah, and as it happened, I was still in this fog of like that. Is that real? That's not real. <laughs> yeah. And then my first thought was, well, he didn't get bit, so maybe I'm not going to even have to do anything about this. And then I immediately was just like, oh, oh, oh wow. <laughs> look, look, looking back through like the prism of a few years mm-hmm. for you, and 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 even your learnings on this project, can you kind of break down what happened for you in the moment and, and how you view that today? Yeah, look, it, it it was sort of, I guess this was awesome to go on this journey as well and meet the people that I have because it, it cleared up a lot of things for me. Um, you know, just seeing what they thought, the experts thought right. and, and this and that. And, um, you know, for, for me, when it, when it, you know, came to attack, I always, I always thought it was going for my board. Mm. Um, you know, I, I never personally saw teeth or, you know, I just saw the side of the thing and, and in the opportunity that it could have just taken me out, yeah, it didn't, right. it went for my board and it was like, okay, well maybe that's it. And, um, and so, you know, m- more talking about that, it's, it was more, I think it was just cruising on pass as they do at J-Bay, you know, they come up the point and, and cruise along and it was like, oh, let's, might just check this out real quick. And it, once it got stuck in my leg rope, it, it freaked out. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so it was like, oh, I've got to get out of this situation. So it thrashed and, you know, hit me in the head. And <laughs> um, but yeah, it just was just, something that it would always just it was it sort of went from in my own head attack to encounter 
to inquisitive, um, you know, and and, it, and because that was in my brain, I, I never, I wasn't a person to go, oh, let's cull every freaking shark under the sun. Like that was never my, never my view. It was like, it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. It's like how many people walk across the street and almost get hit by a car. You sure, know? yeah. It happened. Um, but yeah, we we sort of on this journey, we we investigate that a bit, and um, you know, I relive it a, a little bit more as well. So, sort of explain exactly what was happening at what certain time and what what was going through my head and right. Because in my head, it went on for 10 minutes. You sure? And you see the, the footage and it goes for 10 seconds. The, the footage, it's, it's almost like if you had to direct the most like terrifying looking footage, mm. like it almost did it organically in a lot of ways because the wave comes up and you can't see you. But I always remembered, because like, I've watched it more times than I care to admit, but it seemed like you sent something before it was even there, before the thrashing started. And and I always wondered if that was, you know, just a heightened state of awareness from you because you were in competitive mode. And, and I always wanted to know if you, if that was the case. To, to be honest, because I'd been sitting there for, you know, oh, probably about five minutes, mm. I was almost just about to move and head down the point towards Julian. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, even watching the footage, I sit there and I scratch my nose and I'm thinking and I'm like, all right. And I'm just about to go. And then I heard something. Yeah. Um, inquisitively, I won't lie, had nothing. <laughs> so uh, I just heard the splash. And I guess if I wasn't in competition mode, I probably would have reacted a little bit different. Uh, probably wouldn't have been as sharp as right. where everything was yeah. and um, trying to get out of its way. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, there's so many different things to, to go down. And um, even just re-watching it, you know, last week, I saw things that I hadn't seen before that I'm like in my brain going, did that even happen, you know? And because I finally saw it, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know. Do you, and I and I, the the whole thing about it feeling like ten minutes. Um, you know, I wonder if if that's something that you know time kind of slows down for people like that when the adrenaline kicks in. It it, it could be something like that in a lot of ways. Very much so. It yeah. was. It was. It was total adrenaline. Um, and yeah, everything just slows down. You know, you talk to different people in different things, um, you know, fighter pilot jets or, yep. um, you know, people in really high pressure situations, everything moves so slowly for them. And um, I guess the best analogy for, for surfers is when you're in a tube and you think you're getting a 50-second long tube you come out and you're not even in it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd heard something similar. I don't remember where I heard on the radio somewhere. as a psychologist breaking it down, and they were talking about action sport athletes and how there is a correlation between how they process adrenaline and why they're so good at what they do. And he said, look, it's, it's, it, is, it, it is in your DNA in the sense of, you know, they're probably the descendants of, of people that hunted mastodons, you know, and and that that strain of humanity survived because they were able to process adrenaline differently and take the mastodon down and feed the the family, et cetera. And 
he said there's, there's not a lot different in terms of how some people are able to process adrenaline in a really effective way compared to others. Yeah, and it's funny. You, you meet these people like action sport heroes and um, they're not comfortable until they're doing something really stupidly crazy. Yeah. You know, someone like a Travis Pastrana or a Robbie Madison or something. Yeah. If they're not doing something stupid – they're not in the room with you. They're like, what can I do to it? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting you say that too because there was an element of that conversation that associated with substance abuse too because they said, look, it's the same center of the brain that needs that hit for a lot of people, you mm -hmm. know, and, and a lot of times it's people trying to create an equilibrium between the highs and lows of what they do. Yeah, well, how many retired sports people have you seen just fall off the wayside due to substance abuse yeah. or something like that? Um you know, and that's probably <laughs> that's probably why we're so wild when we do party. <laughs> Too many beers, like yeah. The um, you know, one of the things that I remember being on tour at the time um, that it was feel felt really eerie um, after that was all the other incidents with sharks for you that kept creeping up. Whether it was sort of your first search back, I think it was in Cabarita or Casarina, <laughs> in the lineup at Chopu, in the lineup at Trestles, and and. What was going through your head when all this was happening? Um, not too much. Um, you know, I was still processing these type of things, but I think it's like it's like when you buy a red car, you always keep seeing red cars. Right. You know, if it was, if that hadn't happened, maybe it was like, well maybe that wasn't such a big deal. Like I'd seen sharks out Chirpu all the time. Right. All the time. You know, you swim with them. Yeah. You go into one of the other reef passes or in the lagoons and you totally swim with them. Right. You know, and, and that's that's how I I processed it that. Yeah. Um there was a there was a couple of little incidents. So I was sort of like, oh, you know, just making sure that other people knew what was going on. But since the incident, my heightened sense of awareness of seeing things in the water was tenfold. Right. I would see everything that moved and it would be like, oh, what's that? What's that? And, you know, you just, okay, that's that. You know, it's a stingray or oh, it's a turtle or, yeah, that was a fin. Uh, let's just see where it pops up again, <laughs> you know. So it's it wasn't like I wasn't crippled by, oh, there's a fin, I've got to go in. Um, a lot of it was listening to my instincts as well and where in the past I would probably say if I felt something, I'd be like, oh, stop being soft or, you know, get over it. Like yeah. you're tripping. Where now it's like if I feel that instinct, it's okay, just go in. Right. You don't have to be a hero. You don't. And I actually had that that instance at, um, in J-Bay a couple of years later where I was just free surfing after the event and the waves were firing and something just didn't feel right. And I was like, as good as these waves are, I'm just going to go in. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, was, I was proud of myself for actually doing that because the waves were so good. But once I got to shore, it was like, all right. You felt like you made I'm the learning. Right yeah. I'm learning for once. <laughs> does, does that, I mean, it's been a couple of years, not, not, not a whole lot of time, but like, do you still have that heightened sense of awareness today when you paddle out? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll see so much. 
the decision to come back the very next year, I remember, was really intentional in that you you made a few comments about wanting to face it and go early. And, and I just remember being totally floored by the psychological strength to be able to do that. Um, and then you won the event, you know, it was sort of, it sort of stuff a legend in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> that was a, that was a, a, a trippy build up to that event. Um, in my own mind, I had unfinished business, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like I wanted to go and, and proved to myself that, all right, let's go and silence silence all the people that you know are building it up to be bigger than what it was mm. um but also face my own fears and 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 yeah just i guess smoothing out a couple of the speed bumps that i had in my own brain um and it was yeah the build up to it was crazy like you know all year people are like Oh, you're going back to J Bay and they're they're building it up, building up, building up. And I was like, I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna go early, I'm gonna go and get it, get all that thing sorted before everyone shows up. Yeah. So I'm comfortable. And so went with a couple of mates and then um You hurt your foot. I too. did. I, I blew my ankle out second day, second day in. Um but before that we rocked up thinking there was going to be waves and there was no waves and it was flat for a whole day. And I was just like, okay. And then the the nervousness and the anxiousness started building. And then um, the people I was with, um, Corey Wilson and uh, Paul Daniels, um, we, were, we were sitting in the house and I could feel their tension. Mm. And it got to a point where I'm like, fuck it, I'm going out. and so i just you know pulled my wetsuit and just ran out and sat there for in exactly the same spot for probably about uh, what seemed like half an hour was only like three or four minutes but i sat there and it all started coming flooding back and and the nervousness and i'm like oh okay um and then a little wave popped up and i and i rode a wave and as soon as I kicked out of that wave, it was all done. Yeah. In my mind. For in sure. my mind. Yeah. It was done. All right. I'm settled. And um, actually caught a couple more waves and then came in and the boys are on the beach and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to get a fun board. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I went and grabbed, <laughs> the, went and grabbed the twin fin and, and paddled back out and surfed for another two hours. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a bit of a process and, and then, you know, that was all before the media showed up and mm-hmm. then and then yeah second day i was there blew my ankle out and i'm just like oh no and i you know judging from the scans and stuff a lot of people don't know this but i actually blew it out to a point where they were like you're gonna have to go home and get surgery and i'm just like fuck yeah. <laughs> you know you could you could imagine how the world would have blown up if oh yeah he pulls out and the he scru- says it's an scrutiny and, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i'm yeah. like nah fuck it i'm i'll make this work and so for 10 days leading up to the event i worked with um physios down down in j bay that work on the event el mean was incredible um and then when the wsl medical staff came in i was 
working with Prosser day and night, you know, doing everything I possibly could. And it was it was holding stable. Mm-hmm. Um, it hurt like absolute hell. Mm. Um, but every night just get it strapped and just, I don't know, it was one of those events where things would just happen. Mm. If I needed a wave, one would just show up. It, I wasn't stressed out. I wasn't freaked out. I felt like once I surfed my first heat and, you know, got through on the dodgy ankle and, and did all that, it was like, all right, anything else now is a bonus. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of, um, as I said, things just kept coming my way. It's like, it's the ultimate, like get back on the horse kind of story in a lot of ways. And, and I don't know if you've given any thought to this, but like, was there ever a reality in which you didn't go back to J Bay? No, no. (laughs) Well, I can, I can imagine for someone like you being, just being like, that's just sort of a ghost that's going to haunt me if I don't deal with it yeah look i I was i was fine um like i i I dealt with it i felt like i dealt with it pretty good like the first 10 days after the incident Mm. i wasn't doing great Mm. um but that was due to a few different factors like not surfing um and you know people like don't go surfing and a and also not being able to go outside my house because there was a media scrum outside the house 24-7. Yeah. And it's just like, can I just get on with life? Like it's not you – know, no one's making this any easier. Like right. I don't know what you want by sitting outside my house. Is it you want to get a picture of me walking out my dog or, or yeah. something like that? And so – but once I – even like when I went for that first surf and I, I saw – saw a fin come through the uh, the wave, I was like, did that just happen? And and so I, Bearsy was, my mate Bearsy was driving a ski for me at the time and I'm like, hey, Bear, let me just jump on real quick. And he's like, what's up? And I went, I think I just saw a shark. And sure enough, next set, we saw a fin go through the wave and um, it was a little bull shark and, and – He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, just step me off on a wave and we'll go in. (laughs) (laughs) Solution oriented. Yeah, yeah. And it was at a place that I don't really surf that often because, you know. You wanted to get away from the media frenzy. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing a thing with 60 Minutes and they wanted the the first surf and this and that. And I was just like, well, all right, we're going to go somewhere else. (laughs) Did you at that time – you said you were having a hard time in those 10 days. Did you did you seek help with anyone? Did you talk to anyone to help you through kind of what you're feeling? Um, I talked to a bunch of different people. Um, a lot of a lot of the times when I go through, you know, heavy situations, uh, it's family, friends, yep. uh, people that I really trust, people in, in my real inner circle. Um, but then I also spoke to um, – a couple of other friends that are in the army corps and, and stuff like that. And, um, and they would give me a bit of their experiences and stuff like that. And it was like, okay, well, I'm not feeling anything different. So it is part of the course. So you just have to work through it when those feelings came up and it's like, all right, let's, 
let's deal with this and make sure it's all good and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely times there were, um, you know, there were once I saw footage underwater um, when we were doing the filming, mm-hmm. I saw this footage and of someone coming up behind me. That freaked me out. That was right. probably the worst because it was sort of like, oh, I'm looking at it from the shark's that eyes now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and every morning I'd be okay. I'd go to sleep fine. I'd be okay. And then every morning I'd wake up and just start having nightmares. Right. And I'd just be like, like freaking out. And I was like, all right, it's okay. You're in bed. <laughs> You're not getting your feet bitten off. Yeah. Um, but just crazy how the mind can just create these things in your head and uh a lot of it was all right is that real no it's not real all right time to move on i mean you talk about you know you seem really open to be talking to everyone you know at the time you know it doesn't seem like there's a stigma for you like if you're feeling something you're able to find someone to talk to has that always been the case for you or or is that something you kind of matured into no no it was uh, it's been something that I've had to work on. It's been something that um, I didn't know that was there. I um, So I lost my brother in when I was 17 and a lot of people in the, um, you know, around the area, they were like, be strong, be strong. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, be strong. And I thought it was like, show no emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be there for the whole family. You've got to make sure that everyone is is doing okay. And people coming up to me bawling and I'm just like blank-faced. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I put up this wall. Yeah. And I had a wall where I'm like, I wouldn't let anyone in, but I wouldn't let myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I'd talk to my friends, but even in those situations, I would be – extremely like i'm good i'm good and it wasn't until i go back into my own room by myself at night and just and just cry and i was i remember first time i ever met um michael gervais who's sports site guy legend bloke um i was in his room and i'd never really told anyone the the full story of how it all went down and, and you know how i found out and how I had to go and tell my parents and um and within the first half an hour of knowing this guy I'm in his office just bawling my eyes out sure. and he's like have you ever let down that wall and I was like I didn't know I had one yeah yeah and it was a um it was it was a really big learning curve for me and and I learned to be able to break down that wall but it was more like a roller door now so I can put it up when I need to. Yeah. Um, and so I don't get affected by just, you know, off-passing comments or, right. or something like that. Like you walk down the street, hey, shark guys. Like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't affect you. You just keep moving on. Um, and But then when I feel like I'm in a trusted area where I'm in a place where if I'm going to break down, the people around me, I know I can trust that they can pick me up. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that's how I, I learned to, you know, keep the wall up at times, but also put it down. Um, so that, that was something that 
you know, I still work on it today. It's it's something that takes time and it's something, you know, it's like anything. You've you've got to practice these things and um, you know, show trust in people. I mean, I would also comment that it it, it might also be something that you've been able to <clears throat> when there are other situations where people are hurting, take a leadership position and help them through it. In a lot of ways, I remember <clears throat> vividly, you know, in Puerto Rico in 2010, when Andy passed away and and I, you were the one calling the meetings and getting people together and like reaching out in a, in a way that <clears throat> was really impressive uh, to me in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people just hadn't had that practice in processing trauma. Yeah, look, I guess... In, in that situation, I could see that everyone was just like, what just happened? Yeah. You know, and no one knew what was going on. And I sort of just, half of me was like, yeah, I'm extremely devastated. I'm extremely hurting. Yeah. But I knew I had to, I had other people that weren't dealing with it well. Mm-hmm. And I had my friends or, and I was like, all right. I know how to look after myself and deal with it when I have time to deal with it. Mm. But you got to make sure that these people are okay because if they're not okay, then something bad might happen again. Well, no one wants that. Yeah. So it was, I think a lot of it was a lot of the processes that I'd learned over the years to deal with heavy situations. I just went, okay, let's just put myself on the back burner because I knew I had the strength personally to deal with it. Mm. Um, but yeah, go in and just make sure that everyone sort of had a little bit of direction and and um, knew that it, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna we're all going to work through this together. And it wasn't it wasn't like a a thing like I wanted to be the hero or anything like that. It was just I cared for my friends and I cared for the people that were hurting and. It's like the only way to deal with it is get everyone together and let's deal with it together. Yeah. Um, so that that was my process. And I would go home once again after the day or, you know, the night or whatever, and I would give myself permission to deal with it then. Sure. And then, you know, once again, it sort of got to the end of the event in a group of people that I really trusted and and – that's when I, anything that I couldn't deal with by myself, that's when I'd ask them for help. So it wasn't like a, you know, I'm the only soldier out there. Thing. It was like, all right, I just know when the right time for me to you There was a void it. that needed to be filled yeah. big time. Well, you mentioned Sean before and, and um, you know, I want to wind the clock all the way back to, to Penrith. You're born in Penrith and then you and your family moved to Tweed at 12 and that's when you start surfing mm-hmm. um in i guess i guess you started before but when you really got into it can you tell us about those first few years on the gold coast with your friends um who you mixed it up with and how how you really started to become i guess obsessed in a way to the point that you got very very good yeah um yeah it was it was funny we um so yeah we we used to live in ballina um and then we moved up to the gold coast and i just started i was starting high school um and palm, palm beach, and palm beach palm yep. beach Kremen high school um and then my brother sean was was coming and anyway we're meant to go and i was meant to go and sign up for soccer 
you know, for the soccer season, I was so obsessed by soccer. Surfing, I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll just do it because my brothers are doing it and I hang out and, you know, I don't want to get left at home if everyone's at the beach all day. So um, I would, we went to go and sign on for soccer and went totally the wrong day. No one was there. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and after that, like Sean's yelling at me, don't you take too long? I'm like, why? And he's like, oh, I'm going down to D-Bar to see if I can get sponsored by Quicksilver. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And he was so stoked when soccer wasn't open. <laughs> he's like, yes, we're off. And so we went down to D-Bar and just went surfing. And I came in just before Sean and um, I remember – Danny Takino and Scott Peacock came up to me and then they're like, hey, how you going? I'm Danny and Scott from Quicksilver. I was like, oh, you're looking for my brother. Like, how would they know that we're brothers? Never even met, you know? And and they're like, you guys are brothers? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to sponsor him, but we'll sponsor you too. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, I've never even – you know, never even had interest from people playing soccer. And pretty much I never went to sign on for soccer. It how, was like, how old were you here? I was 12. <laughs> it's it's that easy, everyone. Yeah, it's that easy. No, uh, it was just, it was just, um, I guess it was just, a lot of it was, it just was meant to be. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, my brother was pissed. That he thought he was going to be the only one sponsored by Quicksilver in the house, but and he, then he's he just to, had his sticker pack halved because you were getting the other half. Yeah, or well, he would steal all my shit anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, and it was like, yeah, I was I was stoked. Like I was getting clothes for free. Like growing up, we didn't really have that much money, so Mum would sew on different brand labels onto like Kmart clothes and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So it was like, yes, they're actually real. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We, so, we used to go to Payless shoes and then rip the fake logos off. Be like, no, these are Vans. Like, yeah, sort of exactly. Or, or you'd, you know, steal Converse labels and stick those on. <laughs> okay. And like we all did it. And it, it was, um, yeah, so it was, it was a really, really cool time. And then from there, um, we met Dingo, um, so we'd surf with Dingo a lot, um, and then uh, met Damon Harvey, and so that was sort of there was a, there was more of us in the group, but they were two of the you know the leading kids at the time, especially Dingo. Dingo was like this super kid, and so it was always like, all right, how do we get as good as Dingo? And then Parco moves down um, halfway through the year. And you guys are still 12, 12, 12 to 13. Yeah. 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 Um, Dingo's like six months older than us. Uh, and we all went to the same school. We all sat at the same seat and yeah, Parker moved down from the sunshine coast halfway through the year. So that was our posse, mm -hmm. you know, and we would just surf with each other every day and we'd just try and push each other each and every day. And it was just, I didn't I didn't know how to be a pro surfer or or whatever. I was just following, you know, those guys' leads like, well, I guess you got to do that. I yeah, I was gonna, I was going to ask what is a 13-year-old sponsored surfer? What do you have to do at that point? Um or what is what does Quicksilver expect you to do? Yeah, not much. <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't getting paid or anything like that. It was just like put stickers on your board, 
wear the wetsuits, wear the clothes. And, and are, you, are you guys thinking, we're, I'm going to compete, I'm going to win a world title, or is it just uh, Dingo's better than me, I got to get that good? Yeah, it was so it was, it was sort of like we all had we all had that premonition as a kid like we'd go out surfing and it was like all right we're going to do a 20 minute heat whoever wins this heat is going to be the world champion and so you'd always have that competitive and then would you know you'd do your regional your junior your state events and australian titles and um and then the boys would go on to worlds i'm like wow how do you do that and then you know you just I was just trying to keep up with those guys, and um, I think that was a, a lot of lot of my success. Or I've, I've told Joel and Dean and that I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today without those guys. Yeah. Like for they didn't know it at the time, but I was trying so hard to be them yeah. in every situation, and um, yeah. You know, I think that's sort of where our, our friendship grew too because even though we were competing against each other, we all respected each other because we knew we were all just leapfrogging each other, you know, and it, and it, went, from, it went from cadets into juniors into QS and then on the CT and then, you know, first year on my, Dingo's and mine, I think it was – no, sorry, the second year, we're all in the top 10. It's like, how the how the fuck did we get from being little brat kids to, to here, <laughs> you know? But you hear that time and again, whether it's like Andy and Bruce or CJ and Damien or like even people that don't have brothers, they have like a very tight group of people that's like, my, my goal was just to be better than that person. And then that tension over the years, that's, that's how we got to where we were. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And it's, you know, I think, People need to res- respect those relationships and 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 know that that's what got them there and and that's something that we talk about now. We talk about it openly with each other and um, yeah, it's like if one of us is having a hard time or one of us does good, we're all there to go. Yeah, awesome! Like really stoked for you. Or all right, do you need help? You know, you've helped me out in the past, so I'm always there for you. And and so we've sort of got this unspoken brotherhood in a way. I, I, I don't know if this was sort of, um, you know, the media building it up, but I, I do vividly remember hearing on this side of the Pacific like a major bidding war for Mick Fanning. Um, and it's probably because I worked at the Rip Curl Surf Center <laughs> at the time. So, so you're surfing for quick. And then is that true? Did you have a bunch of brands coming after you? If so, at what age was this? And, and how did you kind of respond? Um, I don't think it was a major bidding war. It was just... <laughs> within the surfing world. We yeah. like within, uh, <laughs> within some circles. Yeah. No, it was... Um, I was sponsored by Quicksilver at the time. And, you know, I was getting what I thought was awesome money. I, I could buy myself lunch every day. Um, and then I get a phone call from Mick Ray from Rip Curl and he's like, oh, we want to we want to sponsor you and we want to offer you X amount of dollars. And I was like, is this a prank call? <laughs> like fully asked him. And um, he's like, no, nah, it's not a prank call. Like um, I'm like, um, I don't really know if this is a prank call or, or not. Um, 
maybe it's best if you just ring back when mum gets home. And, <laughs> and um, so. <laughs> I, I would imagine what he had to tell his boss after he got off the phone. He's like, so is he really excited? He's like, no, he told me to talk to his mom. Oh, I was excited. Don't worry. But, uh, <laughs> it was more to the fact that because we used to prank each other all the time, I was like, is this a freaking prank call? And um, sure enough, when mum gets home, um, he rings back and and they chat and within, you know, we it was sort of like the offer was there. I'm like, well, how do we, you know, be awesome to go and jump on that brand? And but I'm contracted these people and they're like, ah, oh, don't worry about that. We got that. And I'm like, okay, um, cool. I'm in. And so that was pretty much the bidding war. <laughs> what, and how old were you at that point? I was, when was that? I was just 16 at the time. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So you've been, so that would have been 97. 97, started in 97, yeah. So You're coming up on 23 years. Yeah. Or around then. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a great relationship. Um, but yeah, it was, I remember, yeah, so Mick rang and then within, um, I think it was a week or two, had Gary done in our house with contract. Yeah. And I was like, all right, sign away. <laughs> was part of the contract at the time um, CT wildcards for you? Or was that part of the appeal? Or I mean, I'm, I'm sure the, the financial part was a big driver. Was there anything else around the relationship that you're like, oh, that's, I'm going to be the one guy on this program or I'm going to get this opportunity. No, because at the time, Ripco had such a strong junior team. Yeah. Um, Who else was on the team? Zane Harrison. Yep. Um, Zane was like the man at the time too. Yep. Like, you know, I think the the year after, in 98, he won Sunset and then he won the pipe trials. Like, it was like, oh, shit. Um, if I want to be part of this team, I'm going to have to be, Stepping up my game and Darren O'Rafferty, um, you know, that was sort of the the three guys that I would and Hedgie, um, you know, Hedgie seemed like the oldest man on earth at the time. He was only <laughs> like two years older than me. He had a beard already. I was like, Shit. <laughs> but that team, even just that group within ourselves really pushed ourselves. Um and and it sort of was like in my contract, there was like, okay, if you win a junior, you get this and max amount. And then they're like, if you win a QS and then a, a world tour event, I'm just like, um, am I reading the right contract here? <laughs> you know? And I was like, wow, I can make that much money if I win an event. <laughs> and, um, but I, I was like, that's so out of my league. Um, and then, yeah, well, it was only, um, like two years after that i started getting wild cards into the events mm -hmm. and um yeah and i i was totally out of my league at the time but um it was just such a great experience um and it was just yeah just it just all moved really fast like faster than what we could you would ever you know try and script you um you mentioned your brother Sean. He he tragically passed away in '98 in a car accident with Joel Green, um, and then it felt like, um, based on what you said after you won in 2001, that there was a, a dotted line between 
that moment and your relationship to Sean and, and coming out and winning bells? Yeah, it was, um, there's a few things that sort of happened. Um, you know, obviously the one that we spoke about earlier about the being strong and putting up a guard and this and that, but internally I had this, this drive. I always had drive, but now I had a focus, mm. a focus of drive. It's like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and, and do this. And, and even, even still to this day, I'll be sitting there and I'll, when I was surfing, that was a place where I felt like I really reconnected with Sean. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt like this energy was there. Sometimes he, he was probably off doing, you know, looking after someone else. But a lot of the time, a lot of the major times that, um, in, you know, the real clutch times in my career, it felt like he was with me. And that was, um, that was really special, but yeah, it, it ignited a fire in me that just I never had felt before. It was like, I'm doing this and no one's getting in my way. Yeah. Oh, what did it feel like? Because I, I, I think, how, 18 when you won? Bells, 2001? Uh, nine, 19 at the time. 19 yeah. and you're given a wild card because it's sponsors event. And I, I mean, I remember vividly watching the, the images and the videos and you had Danny Wills in the final and, and it, you could feel the release of energy a, after you came in and won. What was it like? It was, it was crazy. Like that year was such a, a build up. You know, we started on the Gold Coast and, um, to be honest, I, I, it was the first time that I found out that I had scoliosis because my back just was blown. And so I was like, a lot of the time I was working through that. So I was just so focused on making sure my back was okay. And then ended up getting second to Taj at the first ever Quickie Pro on the Gold Coast. And then um, went down to Newcastle. Didn't have a, I don't think I had a great event there, but then went on to Margaret River and ended up winning Margaret River. And we had to fly out that night over to Bells. And I was just like, I'm, you know, I was with Hedgie. So we were, we were drinking beers the whole way. And I was just so hungover. I was like, oh, but still on such a high. And the Rip Curl event was like, all right, just go out and do your best. You know, you got no expectations and, and this and that. And I was just surfing. I was just like, all right. Um, I got to surf against my favorite surfers and and then yeah before i knew it i was in the final and i was like looking over and trying to say good luck to wills here and he just brushed me <laughs> and i was like okay and it's funny too to to have that first ever world tour final against willsy because he was a big rival of my brother ed right. growing up so right. it's sort of like and one of my first ever um surfboards was one of his hand-me-downs and so known him for so long it was it was really special to be out in the lineup and i was sort of thinking okay let's let's do it that way let's make this real special and he was like no nah, fuck you, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm competing here this is my livelihood and this and that and and um just from that 35 minute final i learned so much and um yeah just the way that people compete and this and that and um but yeah it was probably the emotion was just shock mm -hmm. you know every day like i'd walk down the car park at bells and i'd see myself and i'm like oh 
I got through another heat and I'll check out the scores and scores was sort of up there with the other guys and just kept going and and I was just tripping out um and yeah it is like I mean it's such a funny thing because it 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 has the bells has this aura in the surfing world is sort of the place where the tribe gathers and Mm. um you know I remember my first time there too you it feels different you know and and the Wadarong people there talk about it being one of the intersecting points in the song lines and it has always felt like a like a spiritual home for surfing. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, you spoke about the Wadarong people that, you know, their their heritage and their um, their story there is so rich and powerful, and you feel the cliffs like the Natural Coliseum there. You feel like there's so many stories in that cliff, and um, and it's not like other events where everything's so fast paced you've got your 10 15 minute drive out there and so you've got time to decompress where you know if you're at the gold coast like i always felt like the gold coast was just high anxiety for me um and then yeah it was so different to when you actually live there and then when you compete there there's just totally different but every time i went to bells it was like i just feel calm and so that was always a big thing for me. And and I guess also having pretty much all my sponsors down there was another thing where I had all this support. And I almost had a routine down there that um, was was easy, you know. Um, but, yeah, the, the whole sense of that place to me is just it's calming but it's extremely powerful and yeah. um and i think people you're away from people too when you're competing so it's uh yeah it, it was really really special and it also too that was my first ever trip for being a sponsored surfer i went down with um will lewis and andrew murphy for quicksilver back in the day and i was like best thing ever <laughs> you know, I got to watch Matt Hoy ring the bell and then straight after that, Oki won the skin. So I, automatically I fell in love with it back then. Um, and every time I went down, I always had a great time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, in the many, many um, versions of the McFanning story, Bells is such a foundational pillar, you know, and it, it was something that continues to this day, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and that's that's why I wanted to finished my career there too is because I knew I was calm and I knew I'd be able to soak it all in where, you know, home is home, but I would have been so sidetracked with everything going on. I (laughs) I wouldn't have, wouldn't have let it sink in. So it was really special to have that event there. And, um, yeah, just an event that I've always, um, really respected, but also just felt great. So that's it. That's part one of our conversation with Mick Fanning. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're looking for something to keep you fed until next week's lineup, the first WSL Challenger Series event of the season, the Sydney Surf Pro, is on from March 9 through 14. Check it out at worldsurfleague.com or the WSL app. Also, the championship tour is around the corner with the opening event, the Corona Pro Gold Coast, starting on March 26th. And if you haven't listened to our other pods, please download, listen, rate, and subscribe if you like them. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday for part two of the Fanning Pod. I hope you get waves wherever you're at, and we'll see you then.